0: We'll turn one more time to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4 today. Jonah chapter 4. This morning we conclude uh, this uh, study of this little book. I must admit I've enjoyed working through this book. I've never taught or preached on this before, so it's been a new thing for me. The story's not new, but to work through it and preach it. Is My observation is you've enjoyed it too. I hear a lot of comments about it. It's good as adults to think about something that maybe we heard last as children. So it's been good. I've not enjoyed this chapter as much. However, it's been difficult to ascern, uh, ascertain what exactly we ought to learn from this chapter. I I can understand it when I read it, but how exactly do you pin that down? And uh, to the extent that I've come to understand what it has to say, I I, I must say I don't necessarily like it. It presses me out of my comfort zone a bit. So um, here we go. Let's read it. Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "'O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? "'That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. "'I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, "'slow to anger and abounding in love, "'a God who relents from sending calamity. "'Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, "'for it's better for me to die than to live.' "'But the Lord replied, "'Have you any right to be angry?' Jonah went out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine, so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But The Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from their left, and many cattle as well, should I not be concerned about that great city? And there it ends, (laughs) with this question hanging. Well, this morning I have two points to make from my study of this chapter, two things which... Admittedly, may not set so well with us. The first is this, that sometimes God's grace offends us. Sometimes God's grace offends us. I know that sounds crazy. There's nothing in all of our Christian faith so important as grace. In fact, grace is one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from all of the religions of the world, which give us some way to try to work our, our way to God. Each one of us, I suspect, is painfully aware of the fact that we rest on God's grace, and grace alone. I know all that. Still, I think this text confronts us with the un- uh, uh, uncomfortable fact that sometimes God's grace offends us. Let me explain. As we saw last week, Jonah's preaching, his missionary work was successful beyond anyone's wildest imaginations. Nineveh, this great and wicked city, repented. From the greatest to the lowest, from official, uh, the king's decrees all the way down to common people, not just with words, but turning from their evil ways and their violence, they profoundly repented. What success? Oh, that preaching should always have such success. But rather than being pleased, Jonah was angry. And in verse 4, God challenges for the first time his anger Have you any right to be angry? But Jonah felt he had every right in the world to be angry. He was angry because he knew God might do this. Kind of, I told you so. He knew what kind of God God is. To, to use his words that he quotes from earlier in the scripture, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. He knew what kind of God God was, but he also knew what kind of city Nineveh was. That city and the and the Assyrian Empire of which it was a part was a wicked, wicked, a people. Jonah knew they deserved to be destroyed. They were the enemies of God, and it, it, as is finally revealed here, Jonah. That's why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. But he had finally agreed. To go and pronounce judgment on this city. And now God had gone soft on crime. Jonah felt God let him down. I went out there and promised these people judgment was coming, and then you didn't judge. You failed to punish them. And these that God failed to punish were the enemies of God's people, the people he had promised to protect. How could God do this? Where's God's justice? Jonah concluded, if that's the way you're going to be God, I would rather die. So in verse 5, Jonah, when the Lord asked the question, do you have right to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer. He walks out. He goes and finds him a place overlooking the city. There he would watch and see what God was going to do. Apparently he would give God one more chance to come clean and do what was right, and he would wait and see if God would finally destroy Nineveh like he promised. Jonah was offended by God's patience, by his long-suffering grace toward this city. What a contrast to chapter 2, huh? The literary structure of this book suggests that there's a direct parallel between chapter 2, where we find Jonah's prayer of joy over his own rescue, and chapter 4, where we find Jonah's prayer of anger over Nineveh's deliverance. Back then, when he was in the belly of the fish, Jonah was quite thankful that God was a God of grace. You remember what he said? In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Those who come to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Oh, but now... When God shows mercy to Nineveh, those who, to use Jonah's words, did not cling to worthless idols, but repented, Jonah is upset. Jonah says, God, I knew you were going to do this. I just knew you were going to do this. I hate it when you're so generous and compassionate like that. How could you let them get away with this? How could you tolerate their wickedness? They need to be destroyed. In other words, Jonah wanted grace for himself, but justice for other sinners. Jonah was offended by God's amazing grace. Jonah's not the only person in the Bible to be offended by God's grace. Remember the prodigal son's older brother? When his wayward younger brother came home and his father received him with joy and feasting, listen to the response of the older brother. The older brother, I quote from Luke 15, the old brother became angry and refused to go in to the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. He was offended by his father's grace to his wayward brother. When Jesus came, the religious leaders were offended at Jesus' grace. Repeatedly throughout the gospel accounts, we hear them malign him. How dare him eat with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes? How could he allow a a known immoral woman to come and anoint him with her perfume? Why won't he demand punishment for a woman caught in adultery like she deserves? Oh, they were deeply offended. Not so offended that they wanted to die like Jonah, so offended that they wanted to kill Jesus and did. They were offended at Jesus' grace. So what about you? Are you offended by God's grace? Of course not. (laughs) We're Christians here. We delight in grace. It's our favorite song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, but how angry we can get. When God does not execute justice like we expect, how could God allow those who hate us to get away with it? Where is God when good people suffer at the hands of the wicked? How could he be patient one more moment? How can he just sit there and hear our cry for justice and do nothing? What about all of his promises to bless his people and curse the wicked? He's not kept faith with us. Have we prayed to him for nothing? This morning I caution you about sitting in judgment of the Lord. Yes, he is gracious, and yes, he is just. But he decides when he will execute justice and when he will show mercy. And whatever he does is worthy of our praise. Don't be offended by God's grace. Well, that's the major point of this chapter. But there's another way of thinking about it, which brings us to our second point. And that's this. God cares about the cities. God cares about the cities. It's just over 15 years now since Jane and I moved here. We came to pastor this church, having left another church where we pastored for a lot of years. That's the easy, obvious way to say it. The untold story is this. After 18 years of living in the rat race, which is called New Jersey, we escaped to the peace of the country in Whatcom County, and we loved it. We did not enjoy living in that great urban corridor which stretches nonstop from Boston through New York to Philadelphia to Washington DC to Baltimore. We just didn't like the city that much and we still don't. We stay out of Seattle and we stay out of Vancouver. We don't like the city. So it's not easy for me to tell you this morning that God loves the city. Jonah has challenged God's concern for Nineveh. So as Brian Estelle in his book on Jonah puts it, God is about to engage Jonah in a counseling session that Jonah will never forget. This account of God's dealing with Jonah is actually uh, a bit humorous, I think. As we said, Jonah uh, walked out on the Lord when God challenged him in verse 4, and he went to find a place to observe what would happen, a place overlooking the city of Nineveh. Just east of the city, he found a place to sit where he could see, well, apparently. Now, we know that he would have to go west to go home, and he went and sat on the east side. So he's not in a hurry. He's just going to wait and see what happens. There at his chosen vantage point, uh, Jonah built a makeshift shelter. It was actually very similar to the booths. In fact, he uses the word, same word. The booths that the Israelites built to live in for a few days as they celebrated The Feast of uh, Tabernacles. So he built this little booth, this little temporary shelter made of leafy branches, which provided some shade, at least until they wilted and died. Well, God actually helped Jonah. He provided for his comfort in the middle of this. God caused a vine to grow up and cover Jonah's makeshift shelter. Well, this is even better. The, the ones he cut down and, and, and wove together, they just die and wilt in a very little time. But the living leaves, well, they're going to provide shade. For, you sit here and wait as long as I have to wait. According to verse 6, Jonah is again one happy man. And then God did just the opposite. He brought trouble to Jonah. At dawn, God sent a worm which ate shady vines. Remember, even the animals serve the Lord. So the worm had a feast, and the vine wilted. God wasn't through. Then God enlisted into his service two more parts of his creation. He sent an unusually hot sun to beat upon Jonah's head, and he sent a scorching east wind. It's similar to the... uh, Santa Ana winds, which we've heard about recently as they blow in from the desert down in Southern California, uh, very hot, very strong, and feed the fires which burned uh, thousands and thousands of acres in a couple of weeks ago. So the combination of the shade disappearing and the blazing sun and the scorching winds took its toll on Jonah, and we read that Jonah began to grow faint. I suspect he did. He's probably getting heat stroke. And once again, Jonah wanted to die rather than go on living. And once more, God confronted Jonah with the question, do you have a right to be angry? This time in regard to the vine. But Jonah was no longer silent this time. His anger spills out. He says, I do have a right to be angry about this vine, and I am angry enough to die. What's all this about? Surely God's not just tormenting Jonah. So what's going on here? Well, in verse 10 and 11, God tells us the point of it all. God says to Jonah, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But, God continues, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from the left, and many cattle as well, should I not be concerned about that great city? In other words, God's saying, Jonah, you were moved with compassion by the most trivial thing, a plant that gave you shade, though you had nothing to do with it. Now, if you have the right to care about such a little thing, Do I not have the right to care about something as great as this city, a city filled with people made in my image, a city filled with thousands of people, a city filled with people who are lost without any discernment, a city that I have ordained for my use, for my purposes, a city that belongs to me. You see, God turned the events of Jonah's life in such a way that Jonah felt what it was like to have something that he cared deeply about destroyed. Something petty, a little wine. But God did this in order that Jonah might know how God feels to have something he cares so deeply about, this great city, destroyed. Even though it's wicked, city. Surely God is free to show mercy, to be filled with pity, even when justice demands judgment. Interesting. The word translated "pity" is literally "the eye flows on account of." James Limburg writes, The picture of Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem is a reminder of God's love for the people of that city. The story of Jonah shows us a picture of the Lord with tears of compassion in his eyes for the people of the other great cities of the world. The Lord does not see in Nineveh only a great and wicked city. He also sees thousands of helpless people and innocent animals. And God cares about that city. Well, the book ends abruptly, right there, with God asking the question, shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? But the question doesn't seem to be addressed, really, to Jonah. The question is left with the reader. It's left with us. Shouldn't God be concerned? Well, surely he is. In fact, may I suggest that God's concern flies in the face of what has often been our concern in regard to the cities. For decades, Christians have fled the great cities of our country and gone and built their nice churches out in the suburbs or out in in, in, in what was a country a little while ago, even while the population at large is migrating into the city. Much of our missionary work of the past century is to send people to the bush country, to, the, to, the, to the, the, the the tribe tribes, primitive tribes, even while the people were migrating in droves to the cities. Only in recent years has the church begun to see the great mission field of our time, the great cities of the world. Ray Baki describes it in an article for Urbana Student Missions Convention. He says, Worldwide urban growth has been pegged at 7.2% a year. At that rate, city populations will double in a decade. Seeing concretely, the birth over death rate alone is creating a new Chicago and a new Los Angeles, six million people in the world every month. Mexico City surpassed, uh, has passed Tokyo and Shanghai to become the world's largest city with a current growth rate of about 80,000 persons a month. The equivalent of a million a year. A little more than half of that growth is by birth, the other half by immigration. In a recent editorial for World Magazine, Marvin Olasky, takes note that many Christians are now paying attention to the urban hope offered in Isaiah 58:12, which he quotes, your ancient cities shall be rebuilt, you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell. He notes, the New Testament concludes with a city, the New Jerusalem, not a new Garden of Eden. One of my great heroes of the faith is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Jim Boyce was committed to the city in which he ministered. You didn't have to speak to him very long before you knew that. In the late 70s, he actually formed a coalition of other pastors in Philadelphia who covenanted together that they would not leave the city under any circumstances without consulting with the others in this covenant. Twice, Dr. Boyce was asked by Billy Graham to leave the city once to become the seminary uh, the president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary another time to become the editor of Christianity Today. In addition to those opportunities he could have pastored anywhere he pleased but he would not leave the city. He begun his, began his ministry in that church on Easter Sunday 1968 and he preached his last sermon In that church, 32 years later, on Easter Sunday, 2000, a few weeks before he died. Jim Boyce understood, indeed, he believed with all of his heart that God loves the cities. And where did he get such an idea? Well, that's the pattern of New Testament missions. If you were to list the largest, most influential cities in the Roman Empire, the cities that would have been found on a a secular map of the times of the first century, you would have just listed most of the great centers of evangelism mentioned in the New Testament. The gospel spread in Antioch and Caesarea, in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Athens, in Rome, in Alexandria. The church spread primarily to the cities of the Roman Empire because they knew that that was the most effective way to take the gospel to the world and they knew that God cared about the cities. So what ought we to do? We don't live in the city well, I'm not saying that everyone needs to pack up and move to Seattle or San Francisco. I try to maintain a willingness to do that, but I don't believe that's where God wants me right now even. But I am suggesting that in a world that is increasingly urban and increasingly ignorant of the gospel, we need to abandon our tendency to believe that maintaining our little Christian community out in the country is the ideal of Christian living. No, it's not. It's not. Oh God, here we can enjoy and labor to preserve the beauty of God's creation, but we need to remember that the crowning glory of God's creation is not the beauty of nature that we see around us. It. It's, it's those people crowded into cities. Oh, God may not have called you to go into the city to preach, but he has called his church at large, of which you and I are part, to reach those cities. So if he's not called us to go, we must at least figure out how we can uh, contribute to that and how we can make uh, uh, identify with that and support that. Mission. Unfortunately we've done just the opposite. We've fled, and when we hear of the efforts of those confronting the cities and sometimes in in, in, in what we consider non traditional ways, we get quite critical and we criticize and we question what they're doing because it doesn't sound right to our comfy little country ears. But God cares about the city. The book of Jonah has been about the Lord. We saw right at the beginning that sometimes his ways baffle us. We've also seen his great persistence in pursuing this prophet. We've seen his sovereign control over nature, over the animals that he created. We've seen the power of his word to change the hearts in a great wicked city and to confront the wrong-headed ideas of a single prophet. We have observed his amazing grace at work. And seen it point us to Jesus uh, and the grace revealed in the gospel. And we learned that he has a special heart for the cities which we may abhor, cities filled with lost and broken people that Jesus came to save. May God be pleased to use this story so loved by our children. To show us his unfathomable, glorious, gracious ways. And to give us a heart that beats for the things he loves. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we delight in your grace. And we delight in the blessings that you've given us in the place where we live. The communities that we're parts of. Yet if we look real hard, Lord, at ourselves, we realize that sometimes we get rather aggravated at your patience. And we don't like you showing grace where we think justice is required. And if we look hard, we see that you may have a kind of concern for the great cities of the world that we don't really share for we probably wouldn't want to go to Nineveh either so thank you for your word Lord that addresses us where we really are not where we pretend to be work in us Lord identify things in our life and our thinking that are contrary to what your will for us is and lead us in your good ways, that we would honor you. Thank you for your word and the opportunity to reflect on it with the promise that through this you grow us to be the servants that you would have us to be. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.